What if I told you that there was a political party that got so frustrated every time they fiercely lost an election that they pretended playing by the rules is cheating and that the rules should be changed to any configuration that would have allowed them to win had we initially played by them? I'd say, come again? And then I'd laugh because I said, come. But thank God that's not the case, huh? Well, you say that, but... I mean, it is a bad thing that the loser wins. I mean, that's just not the way right. a, an election is supposed to work. So that's happened twice in our lifetime. Yeah. Um, and uh, it happened 100 years before that. And it's going to happen more frequently going forward. We can show that. And since I can't find a constitutional scholar with the nominal cachet of Lawrence Lessig, I guess calling him out on this downright abortion of a rhetorical argument becomes my duty. <laughs> duty. <laughs> Diarrhea. Welcome back to Categorical Imperatives. I am Lockheed and Liberal, and for those of you who may be new to this program, I want to welcome you. This is a podcast where we will use legal theory and moral philosophy to discuss current events surrounding law, politics, and culture. Now, we've got an election coming up soon that no doubt everyone is telling you is the most important election of your lifetime, despite the fact that that is the least likely of all possible outcomes. Now, despite this, election season is always one of my favorite times of the year. Really, it is the closest thing to a spectator sport that I follow with the kind of interest that many guys follow professional sports. I'm not really big into professional sports myself. I do like watching hockey, but I really couldn't even tell you the names of most of the teams in the NHL. I don't have a favorite team or a, a certain league or division. I don't even know if the NHL uh, splits their franchise into leagues or divisions. Uh... I just don't know. I just enjoy the game for its own sake. And I guess you could say that I'm the same way with politics. I enjoy following politics, and I really don't much care who wins or what team they play for. I just enjoy the competition. Actually, I do kind of take that last part back. I do care. Um, Generally, I try and discuss principles and policies rather than parties and personalities on the show, but the fact is I am a libertarian. Uh, really not so much by uh, party affiliation as much as a uh, inclination towards a shared moral philosophy. But I do vote libertarian when there is a good libertarian running. So I guess sticking with my whole politics as team sport metaphor, you could say that uh, election season for me is like watching the Stanley Cup. If every year it was the same, two teams in the finals, and I'm the only person in the stadium cheering for their kids' JV hockey team. My only point being that, to the small extent I do participate in the electoral process, any vote that I cast is really a matter of moral support. And without a dog in the race, and with nothing invested in the outcome, I do think that I gain some extra insight into the debates that we always see before and after elections, 
uh, especially after the elections with the calls for electoral reform that always come. Now, the only reform that I favor is a strictly constitutional reform of repealing the 17th Amendment, but we will be getting back to that a little later. My point being that I take it, uh, offense to any suggestion that we change our constitutional form of government to blatantly advantage one or the other political party. It completely ignores the constitutional reasons that our federal government is laid out the way that it is, and this disingenuous attack on our institutions coupled with a complete disregard for the reasons that our government is set up the way that it is, is very frustrating to see come under attack every couple of years whenever the Democrats lose an election. Which I say because for their many, many faults, one fault that the GOP does not have is a history of or desire to overturn the chessboard every time they lose a game and demand that we change the rules of chess so that if the game they just lost was replayed identically, that they would have won. Now, the great refrain from Democrats always seems to be that our democracy is broken. They hate Donald Trump, so they pretend winning by the rules is losing, and they want to change the rules. They don't control the Senate, so they want to restructure it to have true Democratic representation, or they want to add Washington, D.C. as a state to give them two more senators. And when they don't have a majority of justices on the Supreme Court, they want to blatantly pack the court. And when they lose control of the House, they say that it was stolen by those dastardly Republicans and their evil system of gerrymandering that they exploit when they are not too busy tying young damsels in distress to sets of train tracks and maniacally twirling their mustaches. or teaming up with Muttley in the main machine to cheat their way to victory in the wacky races. And, if they're not too busy doing that, you can guarantee that they are teaming up with their fellow Republicans trying to cheat their way to victory in the polls by disenfranchising traditional, traditional Democratic uh, voting bases while maniacally twirling their dastardly mustaches and engaging in a bit of recreational gerrymandering. Now, this strikes me as an odd thing for the Democrats to be mad about, since all the court rulings that gave the federal government control over state redistricting were entirely cases brought in the 1960s and the 1970s solely by Democrats. So... Gerrymandering wasn't evil cheating badness when the Democrats had control of it, but now that their chicanery is the plaything of the Republicans, it has become evil. Not because the action itself is wrong, I guess, but because Democrats don't like being hoisted by their own petard. Which is fair enough, I suppose. But now that the Democrats' plaything is in the hands of the Republicans who can dis disenfranchise traditional Democratic voter bases, it has become evil. Auch auf die Gefahr hin, mich zu wiederholen, die 9. Armee muss zurückgenommen werden, sonst wird sie eingekesselt und aufgerieben. Wir müssen sofort... Die 9. Armee wird nicht zurückgenommen. Sagen Sie, Bosse, er soll kämpfen, wo er steht. Mein Führer, dann ist die 9. Armee verloren. Wir werden die im Norden und Osten bis an den äußeren Verteidigungsring vorstoßende Sowjetverbände in einem rücksichtslosen, mit aller Kraft geführten Gewaltschlag zurückwerfen. Mit welchen Kräften, mein Führer? 
Die Gruppe Steiner wird von Norden her angreifen und sich mit der neunten Armee vereinigen. Die neunte Armee ist nach Norden hin bewegungsunfähig. Die Feindkräfte übersteigen unsere Mannschaften um ein Zehnfaches. Wink! Soll mit der zwölften Armee die Sache unterstützen. Aber mein Führer, die zwölfte Armee marschiert nach Westen Richtung Elbe. Dann soll die Armee kehrt machen. Dann entblößen wir die Westfront. Haben Sie noch Zweifel an deinem Befehl? Ich glaube! Ich habe mich klar genug ausgedrückt! Now today I want to focus uh, on one area where Democrats need to call for a complete political overhaul because they will say the way this body functions is fundamentally broken. By which of course I mean that it is functioning precisely as it should. Now the reason I want to do this is because one thing that they gripe about that I think actually may have some merit to it is the often unsatisfying nature of the responses one hears from conservatives on this issue. Simply saying that's what the Constitution said, or that's the system our founders gave us, are very good jumping-off points for a rich debate. But too often, that seems to be where the argument from Republicans start and end. Now, these are subjects worth being discussed on their merits. Today, we will be looking at a source of mainstream leftist media, talking about reimagining the Senate uh, as a legislature based on proportional representation and a plea to discuss these issues on the merits. And I am going to take them at their word that that is what they really want. Now, I have the greatest of respect for our founders and our constitutional framers, uh, with the exception, of course, of Alexander Hamilton. Uh, what a dick that guy was. I mean, I did recently see a play uh, about how Hamilton apparently invented hip-hop, which was pretty cool. Uh, but otherwise, he was really a uh, dishonest, oligarchic mercantilist, uh, which I will complain about in much greater detail when I get around to an upcoming video that I am working on where I'll be talking about the Hilton case. But that is a gripe for another day. In the meantime, if you would check the video description and you would be willing to go sign my petition for the Treasury to replace Hamilton on the $10 bill with a true American hero, Aaron Burr, Slayer of Hamilton. Now, as I was saying, I have the greatest respect for our constitutional framers, but our system of government isn't good because they were great men. They were great men because the system of government that they created was great. It was new, and it was a brilliant form of government. When they created this system, they discussed and debated different ideas on the merits. Anyone who is a constitutional conservative should be willing to do the same. If we respect the framers, we should respect that they greatly believed in the ability of reasonable men to come together and to debate ideas and to find the best one through open dialogue and compromise. We should be willing and able to reasonably defend our, our opinions on their merits, or we should shut the fuck up. Now, today we will be going over an article from Vox that will be making a case for a fundamental change to the Senate and why it should be made into a strictly majoritarian body proportional to population exactly like the House. And not to belabor the point, but I do wish to quickly point out that the reason I mentioned earlier that I'm a libertarian was actually for a purpose. And that is because often, when people take up a defense of the issues that we are going to be discussing today, progressives can be pretty quick to uh, dismiss any argument 
as a lie of political expediency. So, for example, I have no way to gauge the sincerity of a Republican when they are advocating for the Electoral College. Uh, but too often, it seems like those on the left will assume that any argument by the GOP in favor of the Electoral College isn't a uh, fundamentally uh, principled argument, but that what it really is is them lying because two times in the last 15 years, the Republicans have won the presidency when they lost the popular vote, as though that's how our elections are decided. And that is why they like it, uh, so the left will say, and that any other reason given is a false excuse. And that may be true in some cases, or many cases, I don't know, I can't read minds, um, and frankly neither can anyone else, I'm just saying. So, when it comes to those two elections in particular that we are talking about, uh, that are commonly referred to uh, as the elections where the GOP won the presidency, despite losing the irrelevant popular vote, uh, I want to say that I decidedly voted against those two Republicans' candidates. For brevity's sake, I want to be very clear. In 2000, I voted for Ralph Nader. And had he put a gun to my head and forced me to pick Bush or Gore, I would have picked Gore. That would have been my answer then, and remains my answer now. Even after he went full retard in 2006. Everybody knows you never go full retard. And even after he got so fed up with people calling out for going full retard in 2006 that he decided the best way to fix that would be to dream the impossible dream and to go even fuller retard in 2012. If you haven't seen the sequel, you've got to check it out. Uh, I thought I'd remember it being called Scary Climate 2 Retard Boogaloo, uh, but uh, this says inconvenient sequel, so I don't know. Go look it up. Anyways, I am being sincere here about the first part of this, um, and that even taking my uh, utter contempt for Al Gore uh, as a person into consideration, uh, I would take that hypocrite over the neoconservative warmonger that we got instead. But if we are being honest, Al really only has himself to blame for losing. He is the one who decided to make it a matter for the courts rather than to let the Florida votes be counted, which means that the case was always going to inevitably wind up in front of the Supreme Court because Gore made it an issue for the courts to decide. That wasn't on Bush. Now, uh, despite my better judgment, in 2016, I voted for Gary Johnson. And, had you put a gun to my head and told me I had to choose Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump, my choice now would be the same as it would have been then. Pull the trigger. So, I welcome uh, any criticism or disagreements about the arguments that I will be making before you lovely people today. But past experience tells me that those on the left, whom I will be contradicting, will likely want to write me off as a Republican shill who really just wants to keep a system that favors this side. So all I ask is, if you gotta hate, I hope you can grant me the courtesy of accepting I mean what I say and hate me at my word. Beyond that, I would uh, love to get any feedback from you fine people in the comment section. Uh, where do you stand on this issue? Um, have I, or I guess more appropriately, will I, uh, at the end of this, have changed your mind about anything? Uh, 
do you think that you have an argument that may change my mind on anything that I'm going to argue today? Please let me know down in the comments. Now, with all that unpleasantness out of the way, let's get to the topic for today. Today, we will be discussing the Senate scheme of representation. This is the one that gives two senators per state uh, to act as an upper house of our bicameral legislature. Many people think that means that we are arguing that land should be able to vote. And if you've never seen someone make that argument, Vox will be making that argument in this article. We'll be getting to it. Uh, and in fact, so will uh, Chris Hayes in our next episode that I'm already working on, uh, where we're going to actually be having a very similar discussion, but we're going to be talking about the Electoral College and going over a segment of Chris Hayes on MSNBC talking about the Electoral College. That'll be in the next episode, though. So uh, I do have links down in the description to the Vox article that we will be going over today. And I do encourage people to go and get acquainted with the material that I will be using. I do want you to understand uh, the arguments, not only my argument, but the argument that I will be countering uh, and to uh, have as full of an understanding of the topic as possible. So uh, also anyone who uh, has watched my content for a while knows how much I love turning people on to founders that most people don't know, but everybody should. And our topic for today gives me a chance to introduce you to two such founders, St. George Tucker and Roger Sherman. Now, Roger Sherman is the only person to have signed all four great state papers of the United States that are collectively known as our organic laws. These are the Continental Association, the Declaration of Independence, the Articles of Confederation, and the 1787 Constitution. And most remain to our discussion today is his role in formulating what eventually would become to be known as the Connecticut Compromise, or is also known as the Great Compromise. And this is a compromise that brought together the separate ideas for our legislature in a bicameral system in which one house would be elected directly by the people proportional to population, and the second house would maintain something very much like the unicameral legislature that had existed in the Articles of Confederation that had ultimately granted each state equal suffrage. Now, there's plenty of info in the description about this very odd and very interesting fellow, and I recommend you take some time and get to know him. And second is St. George Tucker. Now, he is germane to today's episode. Uh, based on Tucker's use of William Blackstone's commentaries on the common laws of England as the basis of a course that he taught when he was a professor at William and Mary College. Uh, however, he added uh, discussions on top of the English common law uh, and how it differed from United States law. Now, Tucker also added lectures on principles of United States law and constitutional law as well. And while Tucker considered Blackstone the best treatise to use for learning the common law, he thought it had some important weaknesses in teaching as a teaching tool for American law. And so uh, Tucker uh, put out a version known as Tucker's Blackstone or Tucker's Commentary sometimes, uh, which quickly became the first major treatise on American law in the early 19th century. Lawyers arguing before the Supreme Court of the United States would frequently cite Tucker's Blackstone and more often. They did so more often than any other commentator up until 1827. And in fact, the United States Supreme Court itself cited Tucker's Blackstone frequently, referring to it in over 40 different cases, many of them significant. 
and modern lawyers, legal scholars, and judges still refer to this work as an important tool for determining how Americans understood both the English and American law in the early days after the United States independence. Uh, while I won't be quoting directly from Tucker very much, most of the information that I will be talking about on my side will be information that you can find directly uh, in Tucker's work. He really is the indispensable man in understanding our early history of common and constitutional law, so I have links down in the description where you can go download not only your own version of Tucker's Blackstone and go read it for yourself, which I highly recommend you do, but then also some other links uh, just to general information about the man. Uh, so go check those out. So getting to uh, the article we will be looking at today. And this says... Uh, now, this actually isn't the newest article on the subject that I could find, uh, but they actually do seem to try and honestly represent both sides more honestly than other newer articles that I have seen, which is why I chose this one. Now, this article starts out by pointing out that when Brett Kavanaugh was nominated uh, as a justice to the Supreme Court, that the 50 senators who confirmed his nomination only represented 45% of the total population. Dun, dun, dun. And they go on to say that the fact the Constitution does something isn't the same thing as something being good. We feel that there is something wrong when a minority has that much power, they say. We should pay attention. The Senate's equal representation of states, not people, should be discussed on its merits. I don't think it stands up, the article says. Now, following that introduction, uh, the remainder of the article is discreetly split up between arguments in favor in favor of the Senate as a chamber for state representation and for popular representation. And he starts by making the argument that he says, uh, or what he believes a constitutional scholar would make in advocating for state representation. So he starts out by saying that the United States is a federal system. Each state has its own sovereignty and has some authority over its own interests. The relative authority of the state and the national government is contested, but the states retain something. Now, that our federal government, uh, or I'm sorry, excuse me, that our government is federal and that the states are sovereign are both exactly right. Now, to say that the state's authority is relative or contested is entirely wrong. And it is not that the states retain something. Uh, instead, uh, the federal government was delegated something very specific, and the states retain everything else. Now, in uh, Federalist 45, Madison explains this by saying, The powers delegated to the proposed, or by the proposed Constitution to the federal government are few and defined. Those which are to remain in the state governments are numerous and indefinite. The former will be exercised principally on external objects such as war, peace, negotiations, and foreign commerce, with which uh, last the power of taxation will, for the most part, be connected. The powers reserved to the several states will extend to all objects which, in the ordinary course of affairs, concern the lives, liberties, and properties of the people, and the internal order, improvement, and prosperity of the state. And this uh, construction is fully confirmed in the Tenth Amendment, which says, 
that the power is not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. And uh, this, as the Bill of Rights preamble says, uh, that this, uh, the Tenth Amendment, uh, as well as the whole Bill of Rights, uh, and other, is a declaratory and restrictive clause uh, that was added to prevent misconstruction or abuse of powers granted by the Constitution. And in fact, when contemplating uh, the preceding article, Thomas Jefferson actually asserted that, uh, I consider the foundation of the Constitution as laid on this ground, that the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution nor prohibited by it to the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. Essentially, he is saying that he considers the Tenth Amendment as the very foundation itself of the Constitution. Now, uh, that the powers delegated to the federal government are all positive and enumerated uh, according to ordinary rules of construction uh, it is summed up in a textualist uh, expression of construction, uh, which says, what is it, expressum facit tacere tacitum, or what is expressed makes what is implied silent. And this is the textualist rule uh, in all cases of construction. Now, Vox goes on to say, but since the federal government is so powerful, these states need a way to protect themselves. The framers' approach to this uh, sort of problem was to let ambition check ambition. The legislature and the president check and balance each other. Similarly, the states are not protected from the federal government by mere parchment barriers. They can defend themselves through representation in the Senate. Now that the federal government has become much more uh, powerful because of federal usurpation of state plenary powers, uh, and as we just discussed, this de facto power of the federal government directly conflicts with its de jure delegated powers that make the federal government a government of limited jurisdiction, which is contrasted by the states which have a general jurisdiction. Uh, this is also known as plenary powers or police powers as well. Now, the second part of that paragraph is really not so much an argument to protect uh, the states. The second part really makes no logical sense. Uh, he is incorrectly using terms that are likely to come up in a discussion on this topic, but uh, neither his definitions nor the point he is trying to make really actually makes sense, so I'm just going to move on. Next, he says, these concerns were central to the framers who were looking at the Constitution uh, from the very state-centered perspective of the Articles of Confederation. Each state had its own government and identity, and their relationship to one another was weak. A constitution aimed to make that relationship stronger, but states were still players. An American was a citizen of their state first and the Union second. Now, I'm sure most of you can already tell uh, that this really isn't an argument on the substantive reasons for keeping the Senate as a representative body of the states. What he is really doing is priming you for the argument that he is about to make for a reform of the Senate into another apportioned legislative chamber. Now, this is the final part of his state-based Senate argument. And I think the only accurate conclusion that he actually drew here was in advocating for a constitutional Senate uh, in saying that our government is a federal system in which the states remain sovereign. 
Next, we're going to look at his arguments for making the Senate a carbon copy of the House. And this is the case for people, which begins by saying, we have come a long way since the founding uh, political scientist Daniel J. Hopkins in his new book, The Increasingly United States, traces how America has gone from all politics is local to a world in which national issues dominate even local conflicts. Hopkins devotes an entire chapter to the question of whether people think of themselves as Americans or as citizens of their states. Uh, across a wide range of measures, he shows that Americans see themselves as Americans first and citizens of their states second, and as he puts it, compared to their attachment to the nation as a whole, their place-based attachment is markedly weaker. What is more, the content of state-level identities is typically divorced from politics. Now, that finding does mesh well with the idea of people being represented in government through their states. And citizens, politicians, and parties have all long realized that. Political strategies for all national offices involve coordination across geography. If you live in a deep red state, you can donate to a candidate running in a purple one. If your district is safe for the Democrats, you can travel to canvas for a candidate in a swing district. It is illegal for foreign nationals to contribute money to a U.S. electoral campaign, but it is neither illegal nor uncommon for citizens to contribute to election campaigns in other states. Some candidates receive sizable portions of their resources from outside of their own state. And when Americans are hacking the Constitution to get around the geographic nature of our representation, that should be a red flag. Now, the idea of this Constitution was created uh, with and meant to function as an expression of the vague notion that all politics are local belies every single aspect of the earliest days of our republic. All politics is local was the very aspect of the Articles of Confederation that nearly destroyed the country before it had a chance to begin. When all is local is when the violence of faction that was an inseparable part of man's nature, uh, this is the very thing that Madison made clear, must be avoided what he was talking about in Federalist 10 where he says, From this view of the subject, it may be concluded that a pure democracy, by which I mean a society consisting of a small number of citizens who assemble and administer the government in person, can admit of no cure for the mischief of faction. A common passion or interest will, in almost every case, be felt by a majority of the whole. A communication and concert result from the form of government itself. And there is nothing to check the inducements to sacrifice the weaker party or even obnoxious individual. Hence it is that such democracies have ever been spectacles of turbulence and contention. They have ever been found incompatible with personal security or the rights of property and have, in general, been as short in their lives as they have been violent in their deaths. Now, uh, Hamilton actually addressed this as well uh, in Federalist Number 9, where he points out that the classical republics all failed precisely because of a of a, as a consequence of their misplaced assumption in uh, the idea that politics should be local. Now, I really don't get why it matters if people feel like citizens of the country first or of their states second. It says absolutely nothing about whether people who 
identify with country before state, would rather throw out our federal government and replace it with a national one. And make no mistake, that is what he is advocating for. This article starts out saying that maybe the states should uh, not, the states have more power than the citizens, and that that power between the states and the citizens should be more balanced. But by the end of it, he is outright, uh, outright calling for an abolition of our entire federal system, where the states will no longer exist and where the legislative branch has one body instead of two. He's not even suggesting that we drop the Senate and instead only keep the House of Representatives. Uh, before the article finishes, he will be very clear that even the House of Representatives isn't democratic enough for his taste. But I digress. Uh, first, we need to deal with why his last point uh, isn't a reason to reform the government into another new form. We need to return to the form it once had. Now, this gives me a chance to do one of my favorite many, mini segments on the show. Uh, this is something I call Woodrow Wilson. What a dick, right? Now, this is where I get to explain why Woodrow Wilson is possibly the most despicable piece of shit in the history of our country. Today, we'll be looking at reason number 312, the 17th Amendment. But first, why don't we do a quick recap of some of the most recent reasons from past shows. Reason number 96, the 16th Amendment. Yep, that's right. Woodrow Wilson was the douchebag who looked at the Constitution and said, I know what this is missing, a constitutional amendment that justifies armed robbery. What a dick, right? Reason number 47, the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve Act of 1913 was put into place because, you know, who needs sound money when instead you could have worthless pieces of paper? Hooray for debt-based fiat currency. So, what a dick, right? And finally, reason number 201, his ties to the Nazi party and to Al-Qaeda. Now, this entirely real and not at all doctored photo of Woodrow Wilson taken in 1913 shows that he was a Nazi a decade before uh, those posers in Germany took his idea and made it their own. And, as is plainly visible in this very real and not at all doctored picture, we can see that Woodrow Wilson was in fact two of the 19 hijackers responsible for 9-11. I don't even know how that's possible, but fake photographic evidence doesn't lie. Now, this all relates to his point in the article about hacking the Constitution with outside donations. This is the direct result of the 17th Amendment. Our system of government, especially our federal government, does employ the democratic process to a very limited degree. The House of Representatives does employ the kind of representative democracy that Democrats want in all matters. It is no coincidence that all revenue bills must be introduced in the House. Our founders fought a war in large part on the belief that taxation requires representation. This is why the House has proportional representation. It is also why the House has two-year terms as opposed to the four years of the executive or the six years of the senators, because the People's House requires representatives that the people can hold more directly accountable. 
By contrast, the Senate was designed to represent the state. That's why each state has two senators. And in the proper context, that makes the Senate a body of proportional representation. The framers actually went further than that, though. From 1787 to 1913, senators were not directly elected by the people whatsoever. Until the passage of the 17th Amendment, which was passed in 1913, senators had been appointed by the state legislatures. Now, the purpose of the Senate was to send senators who would act as delegates, really more as ambassadors, of the state governments to the federal government. The decision to do away with the state legislature's election of senators is one of the most deleterious things the United States has ever done. The reason the 17th Amendment was passed was because of a vague notion at the time that it would reduce corruption. Uh, their notion was that rich people were buying appointments to the Senate from their state legislatures, and they wanted to end that. But no matter how true or false that perceived bribery was, or how noble their intentions were, the result of these intentions to end corruption only exacerbated that exact kind of corruption. Following the direct election scheme, uh, all that happened was people elected senators to go to Washington for six years and do nothing except meet with special interests. All they did was centralize corruption. If you wanted to corrupt a United States senator, uh, you had, before the 17th Amendment, you had to win the favor of both the majority of the state, House, and the state Senate that they came from. All the 17th Amendment did was cut out the middleman and create a situation in which corrupting a senator only required corrupting one person, the senator. So, the other harm caused by the passage of the 17th Amendment was that it uh, fundamentally removed many of the checks and balances originally built into the Constitution. Now, we were all taught that uh, the executive branch checks the legislative branch with the veto power, and the legislative branch checks the executive branch with the spending power, and the Supreme Court interprets the Constitution to check the other two branches if they step out too far, and that that's how the founders developed these three co-equal branches of government, uh, and that they all check and balance each other, and that's how our system works. And that may sound wonderful, but every single part of that is completely wrong. The Constitution was designed with more checks and balances on the federal government, but the 17th Amendment removed many of them, and then provided cover for other branches of government to grow and abuse their power. Think about it. Did you ever wonder why the Senate is the one who advises and consents on nominations to the federal judiciary, including the Supreme Court? The reason the executive branch appoints nominees, and it is the Senate specifically that advises and consents is because the federal judiciary was designed in part to handle disputes that may arise between the state and the federal government. The framers recognized something that we have almost entirely forgot, that if you want to have a system that fairly dis uh, settles disputes between the federal and the state governments, that both the federal government and the states need to have a hand in picking those judges. By making senators directly elected by the people, you make them agents of the federal government, not representatives of their respective states. This is why the federal judiciary has aided and abetted the federal government in its vast expansion of power. 
Now, this is not a partisan issue. I can cite numerous cases where the expansion of power has come from individuals across the political spectrum, where the Supreme Court has aided and abetted the federal government in their continued usurpation of powers that rightfully belong to the state. What you find among the founders who designed our government, they designed all aspects of it very deliberately. The notion that popular election of senators by the majority rests on a belief that the will of the majority always equals morality. I don't buy that. Neither did they. They also understood that all individuals act in their own self-interest. This brings us to another key difference between the pure democracy that Vox wants and the merits of a republic such as we have. A republic will thus temper the will of the majority by protection through the system of limited government, protections of individual rights, and a judiciary with the power of judicial review, and a scheme of proportional representation for most elections instead of a winner-take-all majoritarian affair. A republic distinguished itself from that majoritarian democratic system through consensual rather than majoritarian rule. Now, I don't know about you, but consensual rule sounds much better both morally and functionally than a majoritarian system. Finally, balancing the representation of states and people. Now, the article asks, doesn't the House address this problem? To which it answers, yes, but poorly. Or one, because every state must have at least one member in the House, there are still distortions. But even aside from that, single-member districts mean we're still representing territory instead of people. These districts are almost impossible to draw so that the politicians elected reflect the balance of the preferences across the country. Right now, that means a bias towards Republicans. Democratic candidates could outpoll Republicans by up to five points and still not be favored to take control of the House. It doesn't matter whether this is due to conscious gerrymandering or because Democratic voters are concentrated in urban areas. Now, in this paragraph, they finally get around to why they want to dismantle federalism entirely and rebuild a national government where all uh, is decided by simple majority rule. What you may not know is that federal control of state redistricting didn't exist until the Democrats filed a few different lawsuits citing the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause and the Incorporation Doctrine. This was in the 1960s and the 1970s. Well, why did they file these lawsuits, you ask? That is a handsome question. And it is because when we allowed the sovereign states to control and define their intrastate districts, the Democrats couldn't get a majority faction. So they claim the way elections happened were unfair and offered a solution that just happened to give them an advantage without having to gain new voters. But what was a call for fairness when Democrats control it has now become a tool of unfairness uh, and cheating, which coincidentally changed right around the same time that the Republicans began to get a majority needed to control the system of gerrymandering. Now, I will be covering those cases in great detail in my next episode about the Electoral College. Now, the Vox article goes on to say that I don't know of any research to prove it, but I am pretty sure that few Americans think of themselves first and foremost as citizens of their congressional districts. I, I don't know what to say about that, uh, other than it's utterly bizarre. I doubt there was ever a time 
when people distinctly saw themselves as member of a congressional district, and that seems to somehow prove congressional districts are illegitimate unless people uniquely think of themselves as member of a congressional district first and only instead of a citizen or a country. It, it, it that just makes no sense. It's, it's absolutely fucking stupid. Now, uh, the article goes on to say that even the president for whom at least citizens across the country can vote is elected through the Electoral College, which in turn filters votes through the state. In short, the supposed balance between state interests and individual citizens' interests that the framers struck isn't much of a balance at all. Some framers observed exactly that at the time, and as the country has evolved, the value of having such strong representation for geography seems only to have waned. Now, the reason the Constitution doesn't strike much of a balance between state interests and individual citizens' interests is because it was never meant to. He just completely made that part up. Which isn't surprising. He has just made most of this up. That's not to say that I think they are consciously lying. Actually, quite to the contrary. Uh, I think it is criminal how little people learn about our government in public schools. The point was never to balance a state's rights with an individual's rights. The Constitution was created to maximize liberty for the individual. It does this by making power diffuse and decentralized between local, state, and national government, each with multiple branches. What is interesting, and where he should really know better, is that in the original article, the point where he says many of our framers at the time observed this, he has a link there. Uh, now, if you follow that link, it takes you to a New York Times article that takes a selection of Federalist 22 by Alexander Hamilton out of context to a comical degree. You shouldn't have to be a scholar of constitutional jurisprudence, a con law attorney, or even a le legal theory wonk to understand why it is dishonest and excessively foolish to assume that anything that was written in the Federalist Papers is framed as an attack upon the Constitution. The entire purpose, the entire purpose of the Federalist Papers was to sell people on the wisdom of the Constitution that they say this letter was written to attack. It is absurd that I even need to point this out, that a system in which state sovereignty is being attacked uh, is weighted far too heavily uh, he is talking about the Articles of Confederation, not the Constitution. Now, uh, regardless of, uh, yeah, sorry, uh, what is so odd um, is how much like that system in the Articles, the proposed system from the author of this article is advocating sounds like. He is calling for something that looks a whole lot like the very system that he is attacking as unworkable. And if he is genuinely unaware of this mix-up, he makes uh, at, that he makes at this point, uh, this author clearly has no clue what he is talking about and deserves to be disregarded on that basis alone. Now that I've explained why his representation of the argument for the Senate is totally inaccurate and his argument for reform is flawed allowed me to make an actual argument of the virtues of the Senate as it is. Before we get to looking at Article 1 specifically or even the Constitution generally, there are a few basic principles of 
uh, constitutional law generally that I think even a student of American history or our Constitution has likely never considered. Uh, and some uh, need to start with first principles. The first thing that needs to be understood is the difference between a republic and a pure democracy, because even though our republic utilizes representative democracy, there are still distinctions between a representative democratic republic and a pure democracy. The difference being, as John Adams stated in the Massachusetts Constitution, that a uh, republic is a government of laws and not of men. Now, a more direct and less poetic way of saying the same thing is a great reformulation that was given to this concept by the legendary Italian jurist Bruno Leone in his 1961 book, Freedom and the Law, where Leone says, a republic is a government of laws and not legislation. Now, whereas in a purely uh, majoritarian democratic government uh, that is put up as the alternative to our current republic by almost everyone on the political left and many on the right, as a matter of fact, uh, it doesn't matter how many votes a piece of legislation may get. That doesn't make it a valid law. For it to be a valid law, it must first be legislation that stays within the fixed limit of the Constitution's clauses. Only when that condition is met can you rightfully go forward with making that legislation valid through the democratic process. And this next uh, point is critically important. The reason it must be that way is because the Constitution is not the law that governs us. It is the law that governs those who govern us. To serve in public office is a trust and not a right. If someone in public office attempts to act outside the limits of that trust, anything they impose on us is not binding. We are only bound to obey the law that governs us when those in office have first obeyed the laws that govern those who govern us. Now we will be returning to this in detail a little later. Next, when you are dealing with a doctrine of public trust uh, that has to do with individual liberties, where there are individuals seeking more than their pro rata share of power in that trust for their own private gain, uh, and when dealing with such issues of law generally and of constitutional construction specifically, the basic principles that anyone would wish to employ seems to me to be one of redundancy. That is, in designing a government and framing a constitution uh, with the strategism that one can devise being sufficiently multifarious, sufficiently clever, and sufficiently persistent enough that no single set of techniques is going to suffice in defeating your need to keep them in line. When you create a constitution, you do not want to create a machinal line mentality and to put all your eggs into one basket, so to speak. But this is precisely what those advocating for a national government and majoritarian rule through pure democracy are proposing. A system where a single flaw anywhere in its construction makes everything good become broken and worthless. So, to the large question which I think divides a large number of constitutional law scholars, do we put our trust in structural powers on the one hand, be they federalism, a separation of powers, or a mixed constitutional regime? Or do we put our trust in various protections of individual rights entrenched in the Bill of Rights? To which the natural answer is we put our trust in both, and the only question is how many resources you have and which ways at the margin is more efficient to develop them one to another. Now, I can't answer that great question of the substitution in the time that I could reasonably expect you to continue to pay attention to me, 
And indeed, I'm not quite sure how I would answer it if I had all the time in the world. So what I do want to do with you here today is to take the time to figure out how it is that one can take a public trust doctrine and see how it might be converted into an understanding of law and constitutional construction in a way uh, whose combination can be used to limit the power of government so that it performs those functions which it ought to perform but doesn't engage in those excesses uh, that we try to prevent when competing factions get caught in a Hobbesian trap. Now, another point worth mentioning is where we are told anything undemocratic, such as a system that eschews proportional representation and direct democracy and simple majoritarian rule, uh, or any other such similar uh, undemocratic arrangement of government is inherently unfair. Now, my own uh, attitude towards that, which I believe is shared by a large number of other people, is that whenever you hear the word inherently or essentially predicated before any other words, what somebody is telling you in rather elaborate philosophical jargon is the following. We see a rule in which a certain property is affixed, and we don't understand exactly why it is or ought to be the case, and so rather than confess our ignorance, all what we will do is retreat to a higher level, higher level of philosophical abstraction. Uh, and assuming that it has to be in the nature of things, assuming, of course, that everybody knows politely and precisely what the nature of things really is. But the argument, it seems to me, does still seem to be of some value, not concerning that methodological caveat. That is, when... uh you find out that there is some long-standing and persistent rule, and you're never quite sure exactly where it arose from, but nonetheless you see it manages to hold on tenaciously against all attacks on it, chances are it contains a modicum of good sense. So, with that in mind, let's get around to what is right about the Senate, and what is wrong with the view of the Senate that its critics have. When we talk about the Senate, we talk about it as a negative, it seems. Generally, it seems that the House has won in the way we have come to look at the Senate in this negative light. When one thinks about Senate reform, uh, it's clear the opinion of the members of the House have defined it in a way uh, that many people commonly say uh, they simply want the Senate to get out of the way. Or that a structure is a problem and we need a true democracy and a majoritarian restructuring of the Senate on par with the House. But we know democracy takes many forms and majoritarianism is really no more valid than any other competing view. The fact is, we don't expect majoritarianism uh, in so much of our system. It is not designed to be majoritarian. Well, we don't expect majoritarianism in our juries. We don't expect it in our state governments, and except for the House, we don't even expect it in our federal governments. The veto is not majoritarian. The bicameral legislature is not majoritarian, and the filibuster is not majoritarian. And if we are being entirely honest, even the House isn't majoritarian. The majority doesn't really get any say if you want an amendment added to the bill in the House. It's the partisan majority that carries the House. And that isn't majoritarian. 
any idea that the house is the normal or expected form of democracy that we should always expect belies the country we live in. It belies the Madisonian Republic as it has always existed. Uh, one such value of a Madisonian Republic is the intensity of preference. Intensity of preference is a democratic value that is anti-majoritarian. If you are in the minority, you can make it very costly for the majority to get something done. Likewise, if you are in the majority, you can make it very costly for the minority to try and stop you. Now, it seems absurd that the majority should always win the day, no matter how much the minority protests. Second, the Senate allows for formal deliberation. If you have an idea that could carry a four majority in the Senate, in theory, you should be able to get it there as an idea. Now, if you ask what kind of ridiculous legislature wouldn't let something with a four majority get a vote, that's the House. Four majorities often have no chance to express their will. It is the partisan majority, uh, really more of the majority of the majority, if you will. The rights of the individual have a real chance uh, to have some effect in the Senate. An individual can make it very difficult for the majority. Now, this isn't always necessarily better, but it often is. And it is not a virtue that should be disregarded. Now, while it's rarely put this bluntly, the normative view uh, is that the Senate should be the House, apportioned and majoritarian. But this loses every virtue that makes the Senate worth having to begin with. There is no chance for a non-germane floor amendment to get a hearing in the House. Besides, the core features as it exists in the Constitution make it impossible to achieve those things anyway. Now, I'm not talking about the floor rules of the Senate. I'm talking about the Constitutional Senate and the way that it is designed. The Senate is malapportioned to population. That's not going away. It's not reflective of public opinion. It doesn't try to be reflective of public opinion, and indeed, it shouldn't be reflective of public opinion. And a malapportioned Senate with a presiding officer who's not even a member of the chamber that has an independent power base outside of that chamber is unlikely to ever do well as a majoritarian institution. Now, for the naysayers who see the Senate as an impediment uh, and who want to work around it, they will never be satisfied by changing it into the majoritarian body that they say they want. The simple fact lurking behind the most stark reality is the obvious question. If the Senate should be majoritarian, but it never will work as a majoritarian body, why have a Senate at all? If you have two chambers, one of them is malapportioned, and we assume that the malapportioned one is inferior, then if it's inferior, why have it at all? Now, these kinds of short-sighted approaches uh, never factor in, much less start from, recognizing the Senate's unique virtues and considering reform that play to those strengths. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up is because I do believe there is room for reform in the Senate. But this impossible dream of a majoritarian body that most people want is not a reform that has a valid means for reform. The idea of the minority, say, through the filibuster doesn't really bother me. But the majority leader filling the tree and closing the possibility of amendments getting through does bother me. The majoritarian view 
falls to uh, fails, excuse me, fails to recognize the sounded for its virtues. Now, filling the tree and perverting its virtue of deliberation by using procedural tools meant to prevent majoritarian advantages is now uh, now being used to protect them is something they have a problem with. So, I believe the majoritarian and the institutional factions make a big mistake in viewing the Senate reform in a vacuum. The structural protections uh, in the separation of powers is often ignored. But this holistic approach to reform needs to be factored in to any reform. There's two grand impulses in congressional reform writ large, historically. One is a Wilsonian impulse. Now, he was very upfront that his belief was separation of powers is a broken system that is no good, that it cannot meet the needs of the 19th and 20th century. Now, this came in the form of his desire to reshape the legislature into a parliamentary body of legislatures, making the legislative branch a rubber stamp for policy proposals coming from outside the legislative branch, either by submission from the executive branch or by the political parties. This has largely uh, been going on for the past 100 years since Wilson first proposed it. Through innumerable changes... We have been adopting a de facto Wilsonian system of a strong executive and a weak legislature. The majoritarian proposals being made are really little more than a de jure uh, impulse for the implementation of a Wilsonian uh, Senate. Now, the second impulse is the Madisonian impulse, and this is the idea that we should strengthen Congress and increase its ability to act as a transformative body where... Uh, Policy can be developed, not just taking outside proposals from the executive or from other political parties under the guise of deliberation. I believe attempts at majoritarian reform uh, or this Wilsonian impulse, uh, what you will have will be a legislature completely under the control of the president. It removes any great impediment to him becoming unstoppable. Now, this also, it's practically uh, a very short-sighted move, and since the people calling for this move are largely on the left, uh, I want to use the current Republican administration to try and explain precisely why leftists hurt their own side by doing this. Now, we often hear uh, our friends on the left say that they are afraid of Donald Trump, which, if we're being entirely honest, is bullshit. You aren't scared of Trump, the person. Trump has been on this earth for 70 years, and other than a general distaste for him, no one ever feared for their life because Trump was walking the earth. He could do what he wanted because he didn't affect your life. He had no control over you. So what do you fear? What you fear is the power that he now wields. Now, Republicans... Felt the same way eight years ago when Obama was elected. Only for them, it was gun rights and religious persecution that they feared. We all remember the mass hysteria that drove gun prices uh, up as much as 200%. Obama called them bitter clingers, and uh, many others would just simply call them crazy right-wing conspiracy theorists. Now, those of you on the progressive left uh, who fear Trump because he is going to have control over your life, uh, he has 
the power to affect your personal life and the lives of those you love, and he has threatened to use those powers in ways that you find unthinkable. What if Trump could make all the threats he wanted, but had no means to act on his evil desires? Uh, so see what you will see, that is, is everyone loves the benevolent dictator. If we're being entirely honest, they even love the brutal one, as long as his wrath is pointed in the other direction. Everyone loves the advancement of their own personal agenda, as long as the not-so-nice parts are pointed elsewhere. We are far too quick to trade our freedoms and our liberties on that promise to uh, a so-called compassionate leader who will crush what we see as our evil opposition. But every power used to control our political and social enemies can also be used to control us, and you can guarantee that eventually it will be. Now, progressives cheered when Obama used a unilateral power of executive orders uh, to fast-track a left-wing agenda, circumventing our system of checks and balances, uh, and blamed the other side for being the ones who were holding back progress and blocking government from getting more done. But now that that same power rests in the hands of a man who may use it uh, against them, it's now become scary. The liberties we trade for security and the powers we grant government are never returned. We, as a people, must be vigilant in ensuring that we uh, are not tricked into trading away our individual liberties for the promise of a benevolent government because one day that government may very well turn tyrannical and dictatorial. So, whether you woke up the next morning after Trump got into office with a renewed sense of hope or one of deep despair, if we want to ensure that our elected officials never have the kind of power to persecute those they serve, we must work together to limit the size of government and the power our officials wield. If you believe in those ideas, even in principle, I think you will find a vision of a world uh, that you would like to live in, regardless of your political leanings. Getting rid of those checks on government power that are created through things such as the separation of powers, the bicameral legislature, the decentralization of power created through a strong protection of federalism uh, makes more sense than restructuring the Senate uh, and the inevitable consequences that would come from that plan. A continued slide towards a Wilsonian impulse of legislative reform is a bad idea no matter where on the political spectrum you happen to fall. Let's work together to return to a Madisonian Republic that we find in the Constitution itself. Strengthen Congress, allow it to gain its former ability to act much more cohesively as a transformative body where policy is developed, rather than a system where it is so easy for outside agendas to be rammed through with little to no concern for what uh, that terrible legislation does. Let's remember the virtues of, tr of striving towards a government of laws and not a government of men. Now that is going to do it for today. 
Uh, I'm going to be back very soon, as I said, with an episode where we will be talking uh, about sort of a similar topic, but we will be talking about the Electoral College uh, and reforming that uh, instead of the Senate. So uh, stay tuned for that. It'll be coming up soon. Uh, and if you uh, like the channel, I ask you to take just a moment here and subscribe. Uh, I don't put out content on a regular set schedule. Uh, so subscribing to the channel, make sure that you always get notified uh, when I post new content. And then I, I'd love to hear your thoughts too. Uh, let me know, uh, did, did I change your mind on anything? Uh, do you disagree with me? Uh, do you think you can change my mind on this topic? Um, where do you stand on this? I would love to hear from you uh, in the comment section below. If you like this video and you want to smash the like button, I certainly am not opposed to that. Uh, and then what I ask people to do um, is if you like this particular episode, if you would please uh, just take a minute uh, and think of two other people you know who you think would also like uh, this episode and hearing uh, this content and just take a moment and share this with them. Uh, and if you would help me grow the channel that way, I would be very, very grateful. And uh, if you hated this, I, I do ask that you just take a moment and think of two people you know who you also think would hate this content. Uh, and please just take a moment and share it with them because, well, I'm a masochist and your hate gets me off. So anyways, uh, until next time, I have been Locking Liberal, this has been Categorical Imperatives, and as always, De Lenda Escarthago.